welcome to Waiting for Review, a show about iOS development and the Apple ecosystem. From Wellington, New Zealand, I'm Dave Wood, and joining me from Devon, England, is Dave Knott. I used a friend's PlayStation VR, and I appreciate it's not like like a console-level VR as opposed to what you can get in the PC market space, which I heard is probably a little bit better in terms of the quality, um, but it just seemed a little bit a little bit compromised in terms of like the visual quality for one thing and then also just the fact you've got like a wire coming out of your head that's attached to the computer <laughs> that you're using it's like this yep. is i mean this is like still borderline tech demo as, as far as i'm concerned when you've got a wire it's, coming out of it like that it still feels like you've, you've got to really love the idea i think for the sake of the idea yeah um, yeah 100 percent. especially if you're going to let it sort of dominate your living room or whatever um I had a go on a friend's uh, Vive back in the UK. Yeah. Um, about well, getting on for nearly a year ago now, um, and it was cool. You know, I mean, he got it all set up properly, and we, I had enough room to kind of walk a little bit. I had a sort of square in his living room that I could walk around in in VR space. Um, but every application was kind of having to deal with this fact that you're like really truly limited. You know, you've got a box that you can move around in and then as you kind of navigate around different virtual worlds that kind of seem to be converging on this sort of um like you lasso the location that you want to go to and and then the game kind of teleports you there and then you've got this this sort of box of space that you can work around there and then if you want to go back you look around and you kind of lasso and go over to this other place that's great but it sort of felt very much like the the games were sort of working within the the sort of true limitations of the tech itself and and kind of meeting i guess quite literally meeting the edges you know it's still still quite cool but not not for me not for our household sort of as it is you know that that would be um a lot of a lot of expense for something that would be quite limited that would then also dominate one of the main living areas yeah i <laughs> I, th- I think as kind of like a tech enthusiast, I, I was impressed and I was intrigued, but I'm not sure I can see it being mass market in its current state. Like I played like a Resident Evil game and yeah, it was fine. It made me feel sick, which I mentioned before, which is interesting. I kind of think actually maybe I, I should be the one that's kind of into this because I'm quite into simulation games as in like uh, I'm quite into Gran Turismo and I've got steering wheel all set up with a thing that I built that I kind of sit in like a racing car cockpit thing. Um, and I, quite like flight simulators as well so really for me to be able to put on a pair of goggles and sort of be in you know in virtual in a virtual reality cockpit of a plane or, or a car or something that surely i'm like the, the the target audience um but then i think about it in practice and th- there's still limitations in that i've got this pair of goggles on that i can't see the real world in um i'm sat in a chair so I've kind of got to feel my way for the for like the joystick or the steering wheel that I'm using to be able to control various elements of the the plane. Let's say I'm in a flight simulator, and one one of the benefits of VR is obviously being able being able to look around the the cockpit as if you're really in it. So you could like look down at the at the throttle controls or something. But then it's like, how do I interact with those throttle controls? Like I've looked at them. Um, now, how do I actually? Because you, know, you want to sort of put your hand on them and move them like you would if you were in the real plane. But of course, it's not there yet um so what 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 do you do do you just have to use buttons on a keyboard to interact with them or do you have some kind of pointing device within the vr space it just feels unfinished to me in in a lot of ways in that sense 
almost like it needs a hybrid of AR as well. Yeah, you mean like a sort of HoloLens style kind of mixed reality headset? Yeah, if like if I could have like the VR experience, but also kind of like you say, have it kind of in some kind of weird way, like a hologram, and that I can see through it, and that would then mean I can see my hands interacting with it, and then perhaps my hand could be the input device. So if I was to like reach down and put my hand on a, on a throttle lever on a plane and sort of move, that would affect the throttle, perhaps. I sort of think if if Apple are doing this and they've got the sort of technology that they've got in the phones at the moment in terms of like depth sensing and that that type of stuff, right? Mm. You could totally have a um, a headset that's also got a front facing camera that's got a depth sensor on it, so that when your um, when your hands are visible, for example, that camera is able to pick them up and actually bring them into the overlay you know like sensibly kind of filter your your hand into that overlay uh because it's got enough information there to sort of say okay that this this is something that is close uh this is something that is hand shaped you know it can kind of do the the detection that it is actually your hand and as you move it translate that into a rigged hand or whatever in the in the game itself um and you know then translate that into control of the environment it's itself in in the game so i could see the the combination of different technologies working quite well you know stuff like i say depth input from the cameras um and having something that was able to sort of act as sort of an overlay um on real life as well so it's not necessarily a completely blank unit it's it's, it's a, a sort of glasses kind of setup um you combine those sort of things together it could make for the sort of set of experiences that are are richer than just putting a box over your head and kind of sitting there and moving around in this this closed off virtual world you could have things sort of blended a lot better i don't know it feels like that that is the sort of direction that would would kind of suit apple quite well and that tim cook has been on record quite a lot sort of saying ar is where it's at you know and sort of ar kit obviously is um a big step in Apple's direction towards that sort of stuff. Um, I've, I've, we've said it on a show before um, when, we, when we first sort of talked about ARKit um, that, well, I, I think it's a precursor at the moment, sort of setting up like the app environment for a headset so that we've got sort of applications that can kind of leverage that, that sort of um, mixed reality kind of overlay ready and waiting for whatever this this headset technology is if and when it comes yeah it all fits doesn't it if it's going to be big if it's going to be a brand new platform that really takes off it it needs to be really really polished and it needs to really really rock and roll sort of out of the box for a lot of people um because i'd worry otherwise it's going to end up like a sort of google glass kind of thing you know, where it's, it's kind of so niche or so sort of you've, you've got to really love it. It's that sort of enthusiast kind of end of the market that, you know, it comes out and then it occupies this niche and then it kind of just sort of sits there. You know, I, I kind of hope that if they're doing it, it's actually a bit more of a big bang. Yeah. What what struck me was um, the, they were saying that the headset would have like an 8K display for each eye. That just kind of stop me in my tracks for a minute i was like no that's got to be a typo that's going to need surely new kind of wireless technologies to be able to push that that amount of data yeah and i think that was that was also kind of within that that article as well it suggested a um short range wireless technology called ygig 
it's like 60 gigahertz. Um, I don't know exactly how much data that actually equates to, you know, but that's that's sort of bandwidth, I guess, over the the, the frequency itself. But that's a lot, though, isn't it? It's it's plenty. Yeah. I mean, when, um, when you think that a, a, a trash can I, a Mac Pro can't drive a 5K display, and now yeah. we're talking about doing two 8K displays wirelessly at 60 hertz, it kind of boggles yep. the mind. <laughs> Um, which is which is why I think you know yeah totally they they're experimenting with this stuff and you know there may even be things that are operating at these speeds already you know it's just that they're hideously expensive and they're in, they're in the back of a lab um, but yeah it doesn't it doesn't quite feel to me like we're we're sort of ready for this to sort of be mainstream and to be accessible by a lot of people um, I don't know I just really hope they don't release something that's like sort of Mac Pro end of the scale in terms of cost does all this stuff, um, but then nobody can actually use it because most people can't afford it. You know that that would feel like a bit of a shame to me. Alrighty, so this week um, we're going to talk a little bit about how we learn. This has been quite topical for me in the last couple of weeks um, because I've taken a little bit of time out to revisit the Swift programming language book that Apple provide to developers. It's, um, I suppose it's a feeling that's been niggling at me for, for a little while now in that I'm, I'm worried that I'm not as knowledgeable about Swift as I might be. I'm not, I'm not, I haven't sort of gone as deep into Swift as I could have done. Um, so just to quickly roll back, um, one of my apps, um, Armchair, I recoded a large portion of it in Swift um, 18 months, two years ago now. I feel like I never gave myself an opportunity to to study Swift properly. So in, instead, I found that I, I rushed in with with a priority on getting my app working as soon as possible, kind of bouncing between Stack Overflow articles and copying and pasting in chunks of code in the hope that it would work. And and obviously, to you know, I could follow what was going on with the code and that was fine, but I never felt like I had a really deep understanding of Swift. So in the last week or so, I've decided I'd hit the books again. And uh, sort of in keeping with hitting the reset button that we mentioned a few weeks ago, I figured this would be a pretty good place to start. So that's kind of where I'm at. Um, I figured it could be particularly useful to kind of reoil the gears, I suppose, in the run-up to to Dub Dub this year, uh, just so I can be more up to speed and be more ready to kind of dive into things there as well. Crazy, crazy as it may sound... What what did it for me was actually optionals. So I was talking to a friend who's a, a developer but doesn't actually code in Swift. Um, and he brought up the question marks and the exclamation points in Swift code because obviously he's seen a little <laughs> bit of it about. Um, and while you know I I read the Swift book when it first came out and I understood them quite well at one point and you know to I kind of still think I still do understand them. The issue was when he asked me about it, I really struggled to explain them kind of. A, off the top of my head, and B, coherently. So what ended up happening was I kind of fumbled my way through a really poor explanation, and that was kind of a bit of a wake-up moment where I thought I should probably go back and just revisit stuff again. Because, you know, with, with the way the compiler works in Xcode, you know, you can, you can kind of skate by with not fully understanding stuff like this because it kind of, when you sort of do a build, it would be like, hey, you know, you should put an exclamation mark here and you click fix and it just does it and then yep. you move on. All, all the sort of fix me stuff. Yeah, no, you're right. It just, it, you can kind of become susceptible to just, 
allowing that kind of stuff to pop up and you hit fix and it fixes it for you and you can just skate by without really understanding why it said that and why you're doing this just because perhaps you're just trying to rush to get a feature built or trying to figure something out and you can't be bothered to think about why it threw up that little error and things like that so yeah just it was just um I mean obviously I've been using Swift for a while and I do understand optionals and things like that but it's just when I couldn't explain it you know sometimes people say that if you can't explain it to a five-year-old then you don't fully understand it or you know you're a bit rusty yeah and that kind of shook me a little bit so I decided decided to hit the books again and it's funny I've kind of been thinking about the the way I learn um, because when when the Swift book first came out I think I loaded it up on my iPad I sat down read it walked away sort of ticking the box in my head that yes I've now read it and therefore I understand it and I, you know, I did understand it but the knowledge I wouldn't say the knowledge was very sticky and I would kind of miss bits as time passed and going back to the whole explaining it to a five-year-old thing there would be bits I clearly did not understand well enough to explain it to a five-year-old. There's a lot in there though as well right so, so there's a lot to take in you, can, you might be able to read it in one go but putting all that into practice unless you've sort of worked examples and and all the rest of it you're going to lose bits of info anyway oh yeah i mean it's, it's pretty comprehensive right it's a big book yeah i think it's a little bit unrealistic to just kind of sit down one day at page one and just sit there and read the lot and be like great i know swift now i mean it takes it takes more than that i understand that i think what what highlight what's been highlighted to me is that i've got a tendency when i'm reading stuff like this to kind of go too fast and kind of my mind's going too fast and I skim read things and I don't fully process things in my mind before kind of skimming on to the next section yeah which I think kind of loops back to kind of loops back to me bouncing around uh sort of like stack overflow articles so much afterwards just because you know maybe I didn't fully understand something and now I'm just sort of bouncing around the internet trying to find answers to things that I should probably already know kind of the key to all of this and yeah, you know, this this might not work for everyone, but I found it's worked super super well for me. Is making my own notes off of what I'm reading. So in my head, it sounds a little bit weird, maybe, but I try and think of it like I'm back in education, and I've been given uh, an assignment to do a write up on the subject. In this case, the subject being Swift. So yeah, you know, to me, that's got a huge couple of huge advantages. Uh, the first of which being that the process of reading and kind of rewriting it out into my own set of notes into my own words a it kind of it forces my head to slow down and to process what i've read properly because if i don't i kind of don't have the ability to kind of write my own notes on it and also by kind of writing my own notes on it it forces me to explain it in a different way to which it was originally written which again ensures that i've understood it properly um, yeah and a, a true way for me to tell if I'm not fully understanding something is if I end up writing my own notes and I look back and it's almost word for word exactly what the book said. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay, buddy, let's go back and redo that bit and fully get that sorted in our head before we move on and try and tackle something else. Yeah, so you're sort of testing your comprehension and your sort of integration of the knowledge, I guess, by, by sort of doing that process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. It's, it's kind of been relatively recently that I've discovered that this is kind of the best way for me to learn um it first started out a few months ago when i took a a course like a video course on um google adwords and i, I did the same thing with that i would watch the video and be sort of taking my own my own notes at the same time and what struck me was i sort of read loads of stuff about google adwords sort of articles on the web and stuff in the past and 
didn't really, you know, didn't remember huge amounts of it specifically. However, once I'd taken notes down from the, this video that I watched, uh, this video course, I was able to recall that information in a coherent way and explain it to others and understand it myself in a good way so much so much more easily um, it was unbelievable so i've yeah, kind of taken that same approach and rolled it out to uh to what i'm doing here with trying to get like a really deep understanding of swift and yeah it seems it seems to be working so i'm kind of glad i found that that's really cool um I, I've, I've found myself sort of doing something similar recently actually sort of in my day-to-day work um which is where when i'm sort of coming across a new topic or whatever um that has been particularly tricky then i'll I'll save some notes into my own sort of personalized um i've I've just got a a google sheet that i put things into um but the sort of practice of putting relevant links that i've used to kind of get get that viewing and you know stack overflow links or where whatever um and then annotating that and writing on my own notes to say okay this is how i solve this problem this is this is what this is um that's been helpful to me because quite often, you know, if you're finding the same sort of problems again and again as well, uh, I don't know if you find this, but I end up Googling for something and then I'll find that it's already highlighted because I've already <laughs> been there before. Yep. Yeah. You know, that's, that's like past me, maybe two months ago, hit the same problem. Um, and you, you grind through it because you kind of know the way already and you find the solution and you're like, Oh no, I did this. I've already done it. Um, so I'm sort of trying to keep notes to kind of stop that kind of repeat sort of process. And, and again, same as yourself, I'm sort of finding that I then integrate those things a bit better as well. It's a good practice and it's also a good practice to sort of keep doing as you're, you're developing something and you're learning new bits to sort of help you develop that, that project. Hmm. It's, it's like, um, it's like, it makes it stickier. It makes the knowledge stickier by making your own, your own notes and sort of like you were saying, putting links into places and writing notes around it. I mean, when I think back to like Swift, when I think about to a, to a topic about Swift, um, rather than picturing a PDF, you know, like a page on, on the Swift book of a certain page, I don't really have any kind of personal connection to that page of, of information. Um, but if I write my own notes about it, I can then kind of, when I think back to that particular topic, I can almost picture myself writing out the notes again which in turn yep. sort of makes me sort of sort of go through the thought process I went through whilst writing the notes, which kind of leads me to the, the information I'm seeking. Um, it sounds a little bit odd. Now I vocalize it, but <laughs> kind, of, <laughs> kind of, kind of works for me. Um, like I remember once in, when I was back in education, we had um, like a, a VLE, like a virtual learning environment, sort of like a student portal. Okay. And we had, yeah. we had one lecturer that said, um, oh, it's okay, guys, we've got the VLE now. So um, today's lecture notes that were taken on a smart board, they could be saved and then uploaded to the VLE. So you could basically just download all the notes that were kind of made on the whiteboard later. So his point was, is that you don't need to spend the whole lesson scribbling down notes. You can just kind of listen and you know take it all Ooh. in and en- engage. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll, try, the, I'll tr- try it once. And sort of didn't take many notes, sort of thinking, it's all right, the notes will be there later. Um, but yeah, for, for, great for some people maybe, but for me it absolutely sucked. Um, the process of writing my own notes kind of, I found helps me solidify my own understanding. And again, when it comes to exam time, if I sat in an exam hall trying to recall something, more often than not, 
when I would recall that information, kind of the image in my head would be sort of me writing that note in the first place. And again, being able to picture the thoughts that I had at the time, which then yep. leads me to the information. When it came to uh, sort of revisiting notes that a lecturer made on a smart board from a VLE, um, they really didn't do me a lot of favours. And I, <laughs> I think that's because there's often a lot of context around your own notes that's very personal. Um, so when I go back to my notes, I can almost picture exactly what I was doing at the time when I wrote them. And it's all kind of like association in my head, which leads me to to the information I'm after. But then I look at like a lecturer's notes that have been uploaded to a VLE weeks after they happened. And quite often I've got no idea what I'm looking at to, to, to the point where the notes barely make sense because they're very, notes can be very brief in their nature, can't they? And they're quite contextual. It's, it's that personalization, I think, that's, the, the the big deal you know it's your integration your like you say your thoughts at the time um as, as you were learning it and so you know if the purpose of those notes is to kind of trigger that memory which you know programming notes you're going to want to trigger the memory when you're in the middle of coding um notes for an exam you're going to want to trigger that memory when you're in the exam you know you're, you're not going to come back and um and read the notes verbatim as if they're a book you know, they're, they're, they're kind of bookmarks, if you like, that, that, that is to sort of help, like you say, solidify your understanding of, of the topic um, or to just sort of enhance your, your recall. Mm. Um, for me, uh, back back in education, way back when, people used to kind of get at me because I would, like, draw in the margins. You know, I used to, like, doodle and draw yeah. pictures or this, that, and the other, but the point was is that I was still taking notes and my notes would then have those doodles in the margins. And for me, that actually aided my recall. You know, sometimes the doodles would actually have something to do with what it was I was learning. Uh, sometimes it would just be the picture of, of whatever I was working on that day, you know, and kind of it wouldn't have any association, but it would have my association to, to the thing I was learning at the time. So, yeah, <laughs> the, the, those notes would be totally useless to anybody else. But they were my notes and they were really useful when it sort of came to like revision time and that that sort of point. Um, because, yeah, I could totally picture myself back in the classroom, back at those moments when I was sort of learning those those things first time round. Yeah, I guess what I'm, I'm getting at here is it doesn't necessarily matter if your process is useless to somebody else or what, because that's that's not the person that you're taking notes for. It's, it's for you, it's for your own benefits and, and for your own understanding. So, you know, whatever works, if that's 10 pages, war and peace, absolutely everything itemized and, you know, almost a book, then, <laughs> okay, as long as that works for you, fine. It, it wouldn't work for me. Um, but equally, if it's like, you know, doodles and bullet points or whatever, and that works for you, then, then great, you know. Um, but... I think the real thing there, the real, real sort of um, truth, I guess, is thinking about your learning process and kind of thinking about what sort of aids and things kind of help you, you know, right? So for you, it's um, it, it's making these sort of notes and um, kind of solidifying your knowledge in the process of making the notes. Um, I actually learn a little bit differently. Uh, I still find notes useful, um, but actually for me it's very much kind of a process of doing um so i sort of you know notes for me would be definitely just bullet points and then actually if it's if it's a programming 
um, thing, then I'll have to have learnt it by doing it as well. Uh, which sometimes means I have to go the long way around, and that means that I learn something by when it doesn't work. You know, <laughs> I, I kind of have to learn about where the rough edges are um, because I've, I've hit an issue or I've had something completely blow up on me and, and had to, to fix it. So for me, it's very much a sort of code refactor kind of process as I sort of integrate different bits of knowledge. Um, when I first taught myself um, iOS development, that was a whole process of, of kind of, um, I had a couple of different attempts to sort of get into into um, being able to develop apps at all uh, with several different books. And the, the thing was, was that I hadn't actually found the book that sort of matched my learning style. Uh, so I, I had a few books that were sat on the bookshelf for ages, sort of doing nothing because <laughs> I'd sort of had picked them up, had a look, had a go, fell out with the book, fell out with the process, uh, put it down. And, you know, that, that was me for a good six months before I finally sort of found something that worked and, and started picking up iPhone development properly. Um, it was all about finding the sort of material that worked in, in combination with my learning style. Um, that was the, the big nerd ranch book, um, that sort of about 2012 kind of time as it's still all objective C and everything back then. Mm. Um, but the way that book was structured is that you kind of, you're, you're coding as they introduce the, the concepts. So I'm um, you know, a little bit of code and then, you know, you, you run the app or there's a conclusion that they're trying to get you to, and then they explain, okay, this is why this does that. Um, and, and that, that for me is then how I then integrate that knowledge because I've, I've, I've worked it. I can kind of get a feel for it. Um, so yeah, I actually find it quite hard to sort of learn things um, in the abstract. I've got to be quite hands-on. Interesting how we're all different, isn't it? In that yeah, regard. yeah, totally. Um, and actually, if, if, if I sort of think back to what you were saying at the beginning um, about sort of how you've integrated Swift into into your apps, and that's been this sort of process where, you, you know, you, you did a few screens, I guess, and yeah. then on that, that update to Armchair, you did a load more. Um, and it sort of felt a bit kind of almost button bashy, I guess, in some ways, if you're sort of using the fix, it's quite a lot in Xcode. Um, I did the same thing. You know, GoVJ was uh, an Objective-C-based app. Olovid was Objective-C, but then some of the help screens or something, I think I coded in Swift too. And then I did a rewrite of the engine that supports both Olovid and, and GoVJ um, from Objective-C into Swift. And... That's full of awful things. That's got, um, you know, uh, forced unwrapping and, and all manner of things that I just wouldn't do now yeah. uh, because I sort of did it in that kind of fashion. But I, there was no way I was going to sort of read about all, all of the, the nuances um, and then kind of refactor and recode from Objective-C into sort of perfect Swift. I had to sort of go that, that, that kind of long route of um, quite ugly Swift <laughs> that's sort of quite um, orientated around, um, I think when you code for Objective-C, obviously everything's in, in um, static objects and object-orientated um, sort of paradigms. And some of the, the real beauties in Swift is when you get into like protocol-orientated programming. And I think it's only really been in the last six months that I've really integrated that with how I code Swift. So some of my earlier... 
earlier Swift programming that um, that port of the Go VJ engine, I was still treating everything as um, concrete classes and objects as if they were Objective C ones. You know, I just renamed things and kind of made things look a bit swiftier. <laughs> um, <laughs> and got rid of my header files, you know. Yeah, whereas like the next the next iteration of that engine is going to be entirely sort of protocol based and. There's, there's a load of things that then become really quite beautiful when I do that. Like the effects system inside of it will be, you know, it'll be a protocol rather than being um, a class that's then subclassed. Um, and that's going to be a lot more powerful to sort of how the internals work. Um, some of that is just making things pretty, you know, I mean, it works as it is. Um, but the, the bit of me that really enjoys sort of mastering the language, um, yeah, I now, I now want to go and sort of take that understanding back um, and, and kind of make things a bit better. So I, I tend to sort of do these cycles, you know, where, where I've gone, I guess, the, the long the long route through some things, um, found out where the rough edges are, fallen down a few holes, but then that means I can kind of sidestep them and avoid them the next time round. I know where they are and, and my understanding sort of expands based off those experiences. Okay, we'll call that a wrap. If you've enjoyed today's show, it'd be great if you could leave us a review on iTunes or if you could leave us a recommendation in Overcast by hitting that star button, that will help us reach even more like-minded people. Um, Also, we have our Slack channel. We'd love to invite you to join. Our hope is it can be a really great place for fellow developers to come and hang out. If you'd like to join, uh, just leave us a message on Twitter at WFRpodcast and we'll get you signed up. So, Dave, before we run off, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at DW Roboheads. That's Roboheads spelled with a Z. And you can find my apps at Roboheads.com. Again, that's Roboheads spelled with a Z. How about you, Dave? Yeah, you can find my remote control for Cody at armchair-remote.com, my latest app to help kids learn to read. You can find it at spacereaders.com. And on Twitter, I'm at underscore Dave Knott.